first, I got myself born. A decent crowd was on hand to watch, and they've always given me that much. The worst of the job was up to me, my mother being, let's just say, out of it. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest books on the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or regift it. I'm Brian. And I'm Barbara. Today we're reviewing Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, number five on the September 10th, 2023 list. This is the first book we're reviewing this year that has not made it to number one yet. But it certainly is going to be one of the biggest bestsellers of the year. It's been on the list for 43 weeks already with no sign of leaving soon. It entered the list last year on November 6th, debuting at number two, just below John Grisham's The Boys from Biloxi. Which is also going to end up one of the biggest sellers of the year. Yes, and we'll try to review that one as well uh, before the year is out. Demon Copperhead has only fallen off the list two weeks since it got on. That was the middle of May this year. Every other week since it's come out, it's been right there in the middle of the list, somewhere between number four and number 13. There's a lot keeping it in the public mind. Well, it did win the Pulitzer, sharing first place for fiction with Hernan Diaz's novel Trust. That award was announced on May 8th, right around the time the book fell off the list, coincidentally. Winning a Pulitzer, not a bad way to get your book back on the bestseller list. (laughs) Yeah, I would think. This book also won the James Tate Back Prize, which is one of Britain's oldest literary awards, and the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction. It was also named one of the 10 best books of 2022 by both the New York Times and the Washington Post. Nice. And maybe just as significant, it was an Oprah Book Club pick. Mm, Oprah, bunch of literature professors at Oxford and Cambridge, tough call. Yeah. But anyway, you can see why this has been on our list of must-reads. Absolutely. Waiting for it to hit number one may not happen. Well, we committed to reviewing all the number ones this year. We never said we'd review only the number ones. Our show, our rules. Well, that's how I see it. So before we delve into the world of Demon Copperhead, what else is happening on the list this week? Two new books, Dead Mountain by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child entered the list at number three, just below Fourth Wing, which we reviewed last episode, and Anne Patchett's new bestseller, Tom Lake. Which we will review next episode. Yes. Also entering the list this week, the 11th novel in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Will Trent series called After That Night. Author? Karen Slaughter, although I prefer to pronounce it Karen's Laughter, less violent that way. (laughs) Please don't do that. What, slaughter her name? Oh, moving on. Anything dropping off the list this week? Unhappily... Daniel Steele's happiness disappeared after two weeks. And after just one week, James Rollins' Tides of Fire is... Don't say it. ...out with the tide. I said don't. But they write themselves. That doesn't mean they need to be spoken out loud. Okay. Point taken. (laughs) Finally, after one week, Alice Hoffman's The Invisible Hour has become, you know... Invisible. Yeah, see, you can't help yourself either. (laughs) Let's talk about our new bestseller. Okay, what do we know about the author? Barbara Kingsolver is 68 years old. She was raised in rural Kentucky, about a couple hundred miles from the part of Virginia where the book is set. Mm -hmm. 
In 2004, she and her husband, ornithologist Stephen Hopp, moved with their daughter Lily to a farm in Washington County, Virginia, only about 70 miles from the setting of Demon Copperhead. When King Solver was seven years old, her parents, who worked in public health, moved the family to Leopoldville, which is now Kinshasa in the Republic of the Congo, and they lived there a couple of years. That's an experience that helped inform her most well-known novel, The Poisonwood Bible, from 1998. She went to college at DePauw University in Indiana on a classical piano music scholarship. That's really cool. But switched majors to biology when she realized she had no desire to spend her days playing Blue Moon in hotel lobbies. (laughs) She later earned master's degrees in ecology and evolutionary biology. Okay, as a musician and a music teacher myself, I feel compelled to add that there are many things you can do with a music degree. Besides play Blue Moon in... Yeah, in a hotel lobby. And I do tell my students that. (laughs) And the parents. The parents are more concerned about than the kids. Fun fact, in the late 1990s, King Solver was a founding member and keyboardist for the rock charity supergroup Rock Bottom Remainders. No way. Yeah, the members of which they're all published writers, Amy Tan, Matt Groening, Dave Barry, Stephen King. The name of the group Remainders comes from what they call books that have been thousands of copies have been printed and they don't know what to do with them, so they go on the remainder table. <laughs> Dave Barry once joked that the band played by what he called the rumor method. Have you heard of this? From time to time, an alarming rumor went around the band. There might have been a chord change there. (laughs) I know you love our pop quizzes. Uh Uh-oh. So I'm going to play a little clip from the band, because you can hear them on YouTube or whatever. And then I'm just going to name the writers, and you tell me what instrument you think they get to play in this band. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's all I get. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also get the the way they write. Maybe that will help you pick what instrument they're on. Okay, Dave Barry. <sighs> what do you think he plays in a rock? Dave ba- Barry, the humorist. I want to make two guesses for each. Okay. Um, our show, our rules. Either absolutely, either the vocalist or bass. You are close. He's on lead guitar. Now, I'm not saying in that clip. I'm saying in the band. I don't know okay. who all is on what instrument in that clip. Okay. Stephen King, the king of horror. What do you think he would be on? Either bass or drums. Again, close. Uh-oh. He is on rhythm guitar, and I have to say, I think he probably really rocks out. Probably. I think if he hadn't been the King of War, he could have been a, a rock star. Amy Tan, the author of Joy Luck Club. And uh, I'll give you a hint. Somebody singing in that clip. <laughs> are, you, are you hinting that it was Amy Tan? Yes. Oh. Ding, ding, ding. You got I, one right. I wasn't even going to guess that, but keep going. Now, James McBride, who uh, there are many writers who cycled in and out of this group. I picked him because he was on the list last week for the book, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. Oh, yeah. If you don't know the author, then it's just a pure guess. What do you think? James McBride. These are all pure guesses. Well, since drums hasn't been spoken for yet, I'm going to say drums. He's on saxophone. I didn't even hear a saxophone. (laughs) Okay, one more. Last one. Matt Groening. Has to be bass. created The Simpsons. It has to be bass. Cowbell. What? (laughs) Who's... How, Which how? I think is probably a joke. I don't know. Do they really have him on Combell all the time? That's, But it's good. It's a good joke. Well, who's their bassist? Because they have to have a bass. I'll do some research and get back to you. Okay, fine. All right, so back to the book of the week. 
Okay, thank you. Demon Copperhead, the book, is 546 pages, published by Harper. The author is represented by the Francis Golden Literary Agency. The readership book, judging from the reviews on Amazon, is about 83% female, more or less. Not bad. The audiobook, 21 hours and three minutes, performed by Charlie Thurston, who's done all kinds of stuff, nonfiction, literary fiction, science fiction, and fantasy, young adult. Now, you listened to the audiobook. What'd you think? I thought he did a great job. He was fantastic. Well, then let's move on to the story, the story of Demon Copperhead. The story takes place from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s in Lee County, Virginia, the hills of Appalachia, or Appalachia, as my daughter in Tennessee says. She would know. She would know. It follows the life of Damon Fields, nicknamed Demon Copperhead, from age 9 to about 18 or so. The story is told from Demon's point of view as a young man looking back on the heartaches and struggles he experienced growing up. Poverty, domestic abuse, the foster system, homelessness, drug addiction, deaths of loved ones, and so on. Very notably, Demon Copperhead is a retelling of the famous Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield. And it's not hidden. It's right there on the all the blurbs. Dickens liked to chronicle the situation of folks in poverty in 19th century England. And what Kingsolver has done is she's taken that same focus and put it on people closer to our day and age. She does it by literally retelling the David Copperfield story. Most of the major characters from the Dickens novel have a counterpart in her book, and the major plot points are carried over as well. Yes. Now, a central theme of the novel is the opioid crisis, how did it start? How does it affect people? How do we recover? This is obviously, I, well, maybe not so obviously, not something that the characters in David Copperfield were dealing with. But other than that, the two books do really run in pretty close parallel. Like David Copperfield wants to become a writer. Demon wants to draw graphic novels. Demon has an evil stepfather named Merle Stone. And David had an evil stepfather called Murdstone. Demon falls in love with Dory. David fell in love with Dora. And so on, like that. Now, there is one character, just one, whose name was not tweaked or changed at all from the two books. The exact same name. Did you catch it? Uh, no, which one? Dora's, or Dory's, little dog that she carries everywhere. Aww. Called Jip in both books. That is fun. J-I-P, yeah. The two books even have the exact same number of chapters. Nice. 64. Yes, but I think it's important to emphasize that this novel of King Solvers does stand on its own. It could easily be read, I think, without knowing or caring about any of these parallels. Would you agree to that? Yeah, I and I would say I've never read the Dickens novel. We did watch an adaptation. And I didn't want to get too far ahead. I really, because I had started this story mm-hmm. in the King Solver novel, I wanted to experience all of it as a new novel. Through her. Well, that, that's the thing. I think you and I, just like you do the audio and I read the print, I think I delved much more into the David Copperfield than you did. And it did affect our experience, as we'll talk about in our review. So let's talk about what we thought of this book. Our first category, Grab and Grip. So Grab and Grip, what did you think? So for me, the, the grab on this book was very strong, but the grip slipped a little bit in the middle Mm. as the ravages of the opioid crisis on this area of the world became one of the significant challenges Dean was facing. She, for me, the author took us to the point of nearly giving up hope, but I stuck (laughs) it out. The end was definitely worthy. It was so well done. This book was, I just thought this book was amazing. And, um, but it was a little bit 
hard. So it wasn't a five all the way through for me. This I gave a 4.5. You know, I gave it a 4.5 for Grab and Grip, which is very high. This mm-hmm. was a book that I wanted to read. Like, mm-hmm. this is what you want in a novel. You want to look forward to the part of the day where you get to read. Yes. And that was definitely true. Interesting. I had a, I had a little lull in the middle, too. And when you're dealing with drug issues and people are spending their days and lives and time and energy searching for the next fix, it's not quite as compelling. And the, the other thing where I wasn't quite as drawn in is when he was doing better. This is kind of a paradox, right? When he was, uh, when his life was going well and he was being built up as sort of a young high school star for a while, it wasn't as gripping to me. That's sort of the paradox of fiction is that you care about these characters and you want them to do well, but it's actually more interesting <laughs> when they're struggling. When they're struggling. Yes. So I gave it a 4.5. The other thing that was... I thought interesting about this category for me was the end of the book was the first part where I'm like, I really wish I hadn't read David Copperfield because she follows the David Copperfield structure so closely that I actually knew like who was going to make it, who's going to make it out of this dire situation of poverty and drug abuse in Appalachia. I knew because I knew by that point that she's following the story that closely. And it did actually take away a little of the dramatic impact. I ended up giving this category a 4.5. And I would mention for anybody who's reading this book, there's absolutely nothing wrong with just reading it Yes. before you look at David Copperfield. It really does stand on its own. Completely agree. What about flair? She got flair, writing style, artistry, those kinds of things. Yeah, so this book for me was just masterful. Nearly every sentence was a work of art. Sometimes mm. in these reviews, we're like looking for two or three examples yeah. of really good flair. I mean, you could... You could open this book anywhere, close your eyes, point your finger, and then land on a masterful sentence. It's every single piece of it was just beautiful. But part of that art is related to the layers of the meaning that were woven in. So each piece of flair needs a whole bucket to explain Mm -hmm. it. But I also want to be very clear to anyone listening. It's not just because every sentence is a work of art doesn't mean it's too dense to understand. This book is for everyone. It is perfectly understandable. It's absolutely beautiful and It's inspiring. literary in the sense that it's beautiful and well constructed, not in the sense that it's hard. Correct. You know, and and I don't don't enjoy reading it. Did you have any examples, audio examples you wanted to share? Yeah. So one of the things that she did so masterfully was when she's describing the particular domestic abuse situation of a woman who was being abused by the father of her child. She goes from a woman in an impossible situation, imagining how to get out of it. And then she twists that just Mm. right in the middle of the paragraph into she's actually doing it. She's actually getting out of the situation. And it's glorious. So in this example, Mariah is the mother of Demon's best friend. And her, is it her husband or a lover? I don't remember. The father of her kid is Romeo. And Romeo has been abusing Mariah very, very seriously. And this is the kind of thing that often these days gets a trigger warning. Mm. It's pretty hard to take the abuse. And this is when she is starting to fight back. So let's listen. But this night, she remembers the other things she was fool enough to forget. That mad is better than sorry. Mariah will sneak a blade out of Romeo's truck, one of those exactos, and duct tape it to her body where she can reach it the next time she finds herself backhanded in need of a cutting edge. 
taped to her butt below the butterflies are free tramp stamp that her parents still don't know about. One more secret, this sweet blade she takes to wearing at all times. If she finds herself tied up again, this butterfly will get herself free. It's the edge she will use on him, too. So, you know, that, <laughs> yeah, she's fighting back, but you remember what happens to her? She gets railroaded in court, and her defenses are not heard. She's sent away, for, if I remember right, 10 years, and that's, that's where she is during most of the time of the story when Demon, his best friend's name, by the way, is Maggot. That's a nickname. So Maggot doesn't have his mother there. He doesn't have his father around. And what she's showing, this is near the beginning of the book, is really how dire the situation is. Yeah. So even when people do fight back against abuse, it doesn't necessarily go well for them. I gave a high score to Flair as well. I think we both gave it a five. Yeah, I gave it a five. Um, this is the highest. Um, yeah. This is the highest I think I've rated any book that we've reviewed. And I, um, I just, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're hungry for when you want to read something. It's, it's not just the, um, the phrases and the sentences and the paragraphs and the chapters. It's the truths. Indeed. I, I've got some examples of her prose quality. Maybe you've got some too. Here's one. Crickson was a big meaty guy with a red face and a greasy comb over like fingers palming a basketball. Little eyes set deep in his head, pointy nose, your basic dog type of face. <laughs> you know, so when she's describing things, not only is it compelling writing, but she's keeping it within the way that demon himself would think and speak. Yes. And some of the phrases are just great. Here's one. He slept like a dead person, only louder. <laughs> Her hair was this exploded whale spout situation that got in my face. <laughs> you know, and I, I enjoyed it not just because of how compelling the writing was, but because she's a she's representing the vernacular in that area. Yeah. And it's Here's one. I told her a person could get used to anything except hanging by the neck, something I'd heard from Mr. Pegg. So no. that's an expression they must use down there. Another one, half a mile out from June's, the line of vehicles started, parked all sagogling on both sides of the road. I had to look up sagogling, and it turns out, Appalachian term. Oh. So she's authentic to the language down there. She is authentic to the language and to the into the area, but not in any kind of way that is um, like she's actually raising our consciousness about mm. that area and about how the people in that area feel when the rest of the world kicks them around and and uses them as you know terms like hillbillies and rednecks and so forth. She's she's raising our sensitivity to that definitely. Kind of and I I want to talk about that more in the world building and character section. Uh, but before we leave Flair, um, did you notice that she, there's just a lot going on? She takes little cliches and she varies them. Here's a quote. I said maybe he was just having his wild oaks and would come around in time. Mm -hmm. Another one. She was dipping out fast, all dreamy over our make-believe wedding. Tommy would be my best man. Jip would be our ring barrier. Mm. So ring bearer becomes barrier. Mm -hmm. Wild oats becomes oaks. I don't know. I don't know if that's something she's heard in Appalachia or if she's making it up, but it really works. It makes you feel like I'm in a different, somewhat different part of the country, but I also recognize and understand what they're saying. The other aspect of flair that I focused on when I gave this a five 
was the tie-ins with Dickens. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to read the Dickens. And dramatically speaking, maybe you don't want to. But it certainly was fun for me to be drawing these comparisons throughout my reading. It's part of the artistry of the book. Um, and she doesn't follow it slavishly. Yeah. Remember, both of them are born with a call, C-A-U-L, which is what the little membrane that a very small number of babies come out with the membrane still around them. And that's how Dickens' book starts. But she's not going to just represent that identically. In the Dickens' book, the superstition is that um, David will be able to see ghosts. But also in the Dickens' book, there's a superstition that if you're that the call is good luck, protection from drowning. So it's very uh, amazing in the beginning of that book that they try to sell the call. They put a little ad in the newspaper. Who would buy that? Mm. Sailors. Sailor, there was a market for the call, C-A-U-L, in the England at the time for sailors who wanted protection against drowning. Oh, wow. So she takes that idea. He's born with the call, and he has a lifelong long belief that he cannot draw, uh, die of drowning and, in fact, becomes obsessed with getting to the ocean. Yes. So that's her like way she turns it. And th- yeah. that's all throughout you can just sort of follow what she's kept and what she's changed. And you can think about why she made little changes. There was one idiom I looked up uh, that Demon's grandmother at one point says, I think she has set her cap for one fellow in particular. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's an interesting idiom. It's not Appalachian. That is English. Mm-hmm. So she's putting little little hints in here and there to, to remind you that she's playing with the Dickens material. Mm-hmm. The last thing I wanted to mention in this category is the whole project has flair. This is the, yes. not the prose writing side of flair, but the artistry. Yes. She is doing what Dickens did, which is she is imagining the story of somebody who's really down and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's actually taking it a bit further, if you think about it, because in David Copperfield, the hero is a gentleman, or yes. at least an aspiring gentleman. Right. And... Dickens himself was a white gentleman in Victorian England or an aspiring gentleman. Right. So what she's representing is a character who is even further down and out. There's no sense that he's ever going to be a success. He's a kid in Appalachia, in poverty, from a broken home, in the midst of drug issues. Yeah. And she's not a white male writing about a white male. She's a white female writing about a young man who is, if you remember, has some racial identity yes, and ambiguity as well. He's Melungeon. He's Melungeon. And he mentions that several times and thinks about it. I, and I hadn't heard of this particular racial group. Had you? Had you? I had not. So we, we looked it up. And the Melungeon, that's a racial group from Appalachia. And they are noticeably darker skinned, but with light colored eyes, sometimes red hair. This group has been going on for quite a while in that part of the of the country, but with a lot of unknowns about where they come from. Right. And so they developed their own theory that they were descending from Native Americans or possibly Portuguese, which would be like a Latin sort of complexion. It turns out there was a genetic study done, I think 2010 or 11, that they're actually descendants of African Americans and uh, anglo Europeans. Yes. What's so interesting about that is they were very definite in saying we're not descendants of African Americans. 
were descendants of Native Americans as a way of protecting themselves right. against Jim Crow. So this all came about when being black meant you were a second-class citizen legally. Right. So he mentions that in the story that his father, I think it was, was Melungeon, and he's got darker skin as well. So she's pushing the the, the identification even further. She's stretching yes. by identifying as a male, as a Melungeon. I read that she's done this before. She wrote a short story called Why I'm a Danger to the Public, hmm. and that's told in the voice of a Latina crane operator. Oh. And Barbara Kingsolver is not Latina, and she's not a crane operator. That we so, know of. <laughs> so, so all of this is a part of the artistry of the book of bringing bringing to us, to our consciousness, you know, these issues of who writes about whom. She is from Appalachia. She lives there. So she's got that. But she's a female writing about a male in a book where gender is a big issue. Yeah. Let me just explain that, and then we'll move on to the next category. In, in both David Copperfield and Demon Copperhead, the fact that he's born a boy is very, very important in what happens in his life because the woman who comes to take him out of this difficult situation rejects him because he's a boy. That's true. Okay, so the fact that it's a, a woman writing about a boy who is considered dangerous and undesirable because of his gender, it's built right into the story. And we, we can talk about that aspect more. So I gave it a five for Flair, both for her prose and the sort of artistry of the whole project. Yeah. So let's talk about Beam Me Up, the world building that King Solver does in Demon Copperhead. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I was completely absorbed in this world. I felt that it was built well. I could see it. I could feel it. It was very real. It was a difficult world. But it was complete and it was beautiful. It was wild and beautiful, even as harsh and um, difficult as it was. And then even as hard as it was to sort of be immersed in this world, I didn't want to leave it. I, I had a hard time actually functioning <laughs> in my work day when I really just wanted to finish it all in one <laughs> sitting. I gave it a high score, too. It looks like we both gave it a five. Yeah, I gave it a five. I felt, I felt immersed in this world. And, you know, we, it's not like we're totally disconnected from this. Your daughter, my stepdaughter, goes to college in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is part of, what is it, like 50 miles down the road from where this story is set. It's, I think it's more than that, but, but it's, it's... It's mentioned in the book where, where Catherine goes to school, which is called Johnson City, Tennessee. She's at East. East Tennessee State University. Um, you drive through it every time we go down to visit her. You're driving right through. And in fact, there's an Appalachian storytelling master's degree That's true. at that university. So we, we're sort of indoor, and we're only living not that far from it. But it's not like I know very much. You know, so go, the fact that we drive through there once in a while doesn't mean that I know the area. And I did feel like I got to be immersed in this culture and learn a lot about it. I felt like she not only lives there, but she really tried to immerse herself in what it feels like to be impoverished growing up there. Yeah. Um, it felt authentic to me. A lot of the quotes, here's one. If you're surprised a mom would discuss boyfriend hotness with a kid still learning not to pick his nose, <laughs> you've not seen the far end of lonely. <laughs> you know, she's really thinking and getting into the emotion of, of these characters. I'll play a, a, a clip here that <clears throat> I think brings some of that out. It's 
it's a part of Demon's life where he's he's not in high school yet, but he's taking the school bus every day to middle school with a lot of high school kids on the bus. And it's a very long bus route because they're so far out in the country. And he talks about how much he learns from all that. So let's play another audio example. Riding the bus with high schoolers was where you learned everything. How girls get pregnant, how to watch your back. Given the time we put in, the way out country kids got the most education. I saw more than one guy fingering his girlfriend on a school bus or her going down on him. More than one face slapped by a girl that wanted none of it. A lip or two busted. Once this fierce, tiny, toe-headed girl got so fed up of a big guy calling her Q-tip, she stood on the seat behind him and cracked her etch-a-sketch over his head, screen side down, the silver shit running down to cover his whole face. Picture Tin Man out of the Oz movie. That girl was going places. Probably she's the president of something by now. At the least, not pregnant. <laughs> I love that. It's just one of so many examples where I'm thinking, yeah, she's really either experienced this or thought about it deeply, what it would be like. She thinks about the geography of it. There's one line, in my years, this is Demon finally leaving that area that he grew up in. In my years since, I've been amazed to see how much more daylight gets flung around in the flatter places. <laughs> she's concerned about the inadequacy of the public response to poverty, particularly the foster system. Yes. That's another something that you and I have had some direct contact with yes. and really felt she was authentic, and but also learned. Mm. You mentioned the, the discrimination against that particular group and some of the terms that are used are hillbilly, yeah. redneck. Um, she puts in the word deplorable into the book at one point. Yeah. And it's not like I haven't been exposed to those jokes and that sort of demeaning attitude towards hill folk or country folk. I certainly never tell those jokes. I don't like insult humor to begin with. But I also feel like I didn't really push back on it either. Yeah. And she's that's a major theme of the book. Here's a, a quote where Demon is reflecting on how he became aware of these stereotypes. He says, I mainly knew it from this one rerun that came on Nick at Night, Beverly Hillbillies, mm -hmm. which was this family running around a city wearing ropes for a belt, packing antique rifles, and driving a junk-ass truck, dead hilarious. There's not a person here that carries on like that or drives such crap, I assure you. <laughs> So that helped make me more alert to not just what the stereotypes are, but how they affect people on the receiving end of them, Yeah, which I admit I hadn't thought of much. And, and I think the sense of authenticity that we can sort of believe what we're reading is helped by the fact that she's very careful, deliberate, accurate about locations, physical details. So I, I actually started looking up the locations that she mentioned. I'm like, is she making these up or are these real places? Pennington Gap is the the main town that this is located in. That's a real place. That's a real place. I remember Goochland that. Women's. Goochland. <laughs> this is where Maggot's mom, Mariah, is sent. That's a real place. That's a real place. Virginia Correctional Center for Women. Elk Knob Elementary. Yes. Lehigh Generals. Yes. That's real. The mascot and the high school. Mountain Empire Community College. Real? Yes. All right. Sinking River Baptist. I looked this up. It's actually, there's a sinking creek Baptist oh, in Johnson City. She made it a river. Close enough. <laughs> Murder Valley, Tennessee. This is where his father was from. 
This that's, is important in the book because he goes there eventually. That's got to be real. It's not. That's not real? It's not in the... You can't find it on the map program. So it's either not real or it's only spoken of as Murder Valley locally. Got it. Hungry Mother. That has to be real. It is. There's an actual <laughs> state park in Virginia <laughs> called Hungry Mother. And last example, Devil's Bathtub. This is a, a waterfall where his dad died before he was born. And he goes there, too. Devil's Bathtub, real or not? It has to be real. It is real. <laughs> In fact, if you go on Google Maps, it's a tourist attraction. There's thousands of photos of it. We could totally go. I think we should go. So world building, very impressive Definitely works. We both gave it a five. What yes. about New Best Friends? This is the the characters. I gave this category a five. And I, in thinking back on it, there not every character made me want to spend time with them. But I loved this kid, Demon. Mm. I, like, I'm emotional about it. I wanted to scoop him up and yeah. mother him. I, I wanted to take them all in and save them. I wanted to fight for them. I wanted to help them. I wanted to spare them. I'm like, I'm emotional. I, <laughs> I loved these these characters in this story and they didn't deserve all the things that happened the characters work yeah but for me also it's mainly the lead yeah it's mainly when i was thinking about the characters they're all interesting they're all uh distinctive some of them are funny some of them are extraordinarily villainous creepy yeah but it's the main character that really draws you in it part of it's his resilience because he's facing incredible challenges, essentially growing up as an orphan within a horrible foster care system. Yeah. Um, there's this one poignant moment where he says, I got up every day thinking the sun was out there shining and it could just as well shine on me as any other human person. So the very positive kind of outlook yeah. that, in my experience, most kids have until they're until it's beaten out of them. Until life knocks them down. But then right after that, he's he's in school and some kids deliberately leave out for him to pick up what they call their slam book. This is a little book that the girls pass around and they just slam everybody. And he reads that and he's called shit eater, loser, trash, jerk off. This is when he's in the foster system and he can't afford to like even clean his clothes. Yeah. And And this knocks him back. He says after that, I wanted no sun shining on me now. Mm. I erased myself like a chalkboard. Mm. But he doesn't shrivel up and die. He doesn't. He somehow makes it through. And the, one of his mentors that he acquires later, who's um, uh, an African-American counselor and English teacher from the North, who's down there teaching, named, uh, what, Mr. Armstrong? Armstrong? Yes. Really takes him under his wing, as does his wife, the art teacher, and he says to, to Demon, you know, sometimes you hear about these miracles where a car gets completely mangled in a wreck, but then the driver walks out of it alive. Yeah. I'm saying you are that driver. Yeah. So we're, we as readers are also responding to his resilience, but also his character. Yeah. And there's a line near the end of the book where he's becoming a storyteller because he wants to do graphic novels. And he says, what matters in a story is the heart of its hero. Mm. Well, that's clearly Barbara Kingsolver speaking as well. Yeah, that's the through line. And she's given this character a heart, a moral heart. Yeah. Another one of the characters that's important to him is Mr. Dick, who writes little inspiring lines from literature and puts them on kites and yes. flies them. Yes. And he says to Demon, or Demon's thinking about what he's learned from Mr. Dick, some words he wanted to put up there on the kites for me. Yeah. He wrote them at the very top. 
Never be mean in anything. Never be false. Never be cruel. I can always be hopeful of you. Mm. And then Demon continues, if that was from him to me, it was more man-to-man talk than I'd ever had in life so far. And it's, it's not just that we're told that he's got that moral core. And we are told that his, his, his boyhood crush, Emmy says, it's why I couldn't be with Hammer Kelly. He's that same kind of good like you are. Like there's some metal or something in you that won't melt down no matter what. Mm. So we do have a few places where we're told the demon is good, but mostly we just see it. Yeah, and feel it. And feel it because he's, like all of us, he's surrounded by people who don't handle their challenges that well, who lash out, who yeah. become destructive themselves. Yes. And he never does that. He he continues to, to hold on to that moral core. And that, I think, is the most, the, the thing that really makes this character work. Yeah, that's that kernel of hope that carries you through. Um, at the end of the book, he has survived. He has kept that kernel. And now he's starting to build something. Remember, he's he wants to start writing graphic novels and he wants to write about his own community. He spent the whole book reflecting on who who is he? You know, who is he really? What are these stereotypes out there? What are these obstacles? Now he wants to really learn what is this community that I'm born into? Yeah. And what's been done to us. The last thing I want to say about this character is I read that Dickens said that David Copperfield and all the characters in that book were among his favorites. And it was very hard for him to let go of them when he finished writing it. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's the test. And I just wanted to ask you, was it hard for you to let go of these characters when you finished the book? Yeah, it really was. I really, I didn't want it to end. I wanted it to continue. I wanted to know what was going to happen next. But it was not the kind of book where I immediately started reading it again from the beginning because it was just a little too hard. But I do think that I I will read it again, and I'll get more out of it even the second time. When you look at the reviews online, almost everybody likes it, but the people who don't, <clears throat> it's because it's just too hard. I mean, she's writing about real things. She's writing about people being devastated by the opioid crisis in ways that many of us have either experienced directly or are not too far, and it's, it's not an easy emotional ride. It's not easy, but it is, it's worth it. It's mm-hmm. not too hard. It's the kind of thing that we should be reading so that we all know more. So I gave Best Friends, New Best Friends, a four, and you gave it a five. The last category that we always look at is all the feels, the emotional impact of the book. Yeah, so I gave this category a five as well. <laughs> okay. I laughed out loud. I cried. I got chills. I could not put it down for very long, even when it got difficult and I had to put it down for a little bit. And I never actually lost hope in this book. It was like she took us right to the edge of losing hope, but we never did lose hope. And the and the end was very worthy. But it was meaningful. All of it, like the feelings were real and and they and there was truth in them. There's always there's always more impact for me when there's some kind of truth that you're learning about humanity or the world. And I, I gave this a five. I gave it a four point five, very high score. I've started doing something in my notes because I know this is one of the categories we're going to talk about. I just put a little emoji when I have an emotional reaction to a passage. You know, and if I get through an entire book and there's no I don't want to call them smiley faces because often the reaction is crying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> some I draw some little face. And if I get through an entire book and there's no faces, that's not good. That's not good. This one had plenty of faces. Good. But I'm also reacting emotionally to the project as a whole. 
she makes it very clear that she's she's drawing, she's channeling Dave uh, Charles Dickens here. She says in the afterword, the acknowledgments, I'm grateful to Charles Dickens for writing David Copperfield. His impassioned critique of institutional poverty and its damaging effects on children in his society, mm. working for years with his outrage, inventiveness, and empathy at my elbow, I've come to think of him as my genius friend. Oh, I love that. You know, she says in the book, in Demon's Voice, one thing I learned from Mr. Armstrong while striving heartily to remain uneducated, (laughs) a good story doesn't just copy life, it pushes back on it. Mm. It's why I draw what I draw. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's another statement that's (laughs) representing King Solver herself as well. Yes. She says in her acknowledgments, it sort of could be a dedication. She says, for the kids who wake up hungry in those dark places every day, who've lost their families to poverty and pain pills, whose caseworkers keep losing their files, who feel invisible or wish they were, this book is for you. Yeah. Hmm. And I really appreciated that. And I think she's done it successfully. Yeah, I did She certainly raised my awareness not only of Appalachia, but of the opioid crisis. She's got a character, what's her name, Miss June? Yeah. Who is a nurse. Aunt June. Aunt June, and I don't think she has a correspondent in David Copperfield. She's the only one I couldn't find that lined up. Hmm. She's the one who knows what's going on with the opioids right away. Yeah, Kingsolver writes that in to give us resistance. Yeah. Sometimes we think, oh, everybody didn't under- nobody understood what was going on back then when it was starting. Because remember, this book is set in the late mid '90s and right. following when it was starting. No, that's not true. Some people knew. Just like during slave times, there were always white people who objected to and fought against slavery. It's never just what people thought at the time. Right. It's that the people who knew what was going on were ignored. So she's got a figure who's fighting, and she says at one point, uh, Demon says to her, I don't know a single person my age that's not taking pills. Yeah. June was quiet. We were halfway back before she spoke again. They did this to us. Yes. You understand that right? That's powerful. It is. And the other thing I wanted to mention in terms of the emotion, the value, the purpose of this book that makes me a little emotional is she chose to write about a boy, not a girl. She chose to write about a boy who was rejected because he was a boy. Mm. And that's in the original and in her story that there's a, a an older woman in the family who comes with the intention of adopting this child and raising it from a mother who's incapable of it and turns around and walks away because it's a boy child and not a girl. My grandmother had no use for anything in the line of boys or men. Any of them that stands up to make his water, was how she put it. (laughs) Bad news for me. And she says, boys aren't a thing, but just little men still learning what to aim at. Mm. Oh, guess what? Barbara Kingsolver has hope for these little boys. Yeah. Or she wouldn't write this story. She thinks that it's still possible for little boys to become men who have a moral center, who aren't just looking for what to aim at next. Yes. So there's multiple levels of hope and resistance in this book. It's a beautiful work of art, but also a pushing back. Yes. I thought this was a great book, and I had a lot of feeling about it. I gave all the feels 4.5. Which is very high for you. 
very high. I'm very stingy with my Indeed. fours and fives. So our combined score is a 4.75, mm-hmm. the highest of the books reviewed this year by us, mm-hmm. above our previous favorite, Bonnie Garmus's Lessons in Chemistry, which was scored at a 4.45. Now, by comparison, Demon Copperhead has a score of 4.6 on Amazon, 4.53 on Goodreads, 4.51 from Storygrapher, an average of 4.55. Wow. So this is the first time <laughs> our score is actually higher than what the book is getting on social media. We know what we like. And what we don't. And we also know when it's time to sign off. So <laughs> thank you for joining us. We will see you next episode when we get to review the novel Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying. Keep laughing, keep crying. And don't stop until you've read them all. <laughs>